Hello and welcome back to the Rare Possessions Podcast. It's been a while that we've uh, we took a little bit of a break. A little bit of summer break. But uh, we, we appreciate you guys hanging in with us and uh, we're bringing back with uh, with a vengeance. No, we're, we're coming back with a really strong article from Daniel C. Peterson entitled Nephi and his Asherah. And this first appeared in uh, the Farms Review. This is actually from the Journal of Book Woman Studies. Well, John Sorensen is where the main article came from. Yeah, it originally came from a Feshrift, a book published in honor of John Sorensen that was published in 1998 by Farms. This is an abbreviated, and I laugh a little bit when I say it, an abbreviated version of this essay. Uh, it's still about 12 pages, and it's a little bit dense, but the original was 50, so I think we're doing okay. Yeah, yeah, so... We appreciate you guys uh, sticking in again and listening to this one because it's uh, it's good. It might be a little bit longer, but thank you for your patience. But uh, this is kind of a groundbreaking piece from mm-hmm. from Dan Peterson. But why? I mean, what was such a big deal about this? This was a completely different uh, different approach to uh, the vision of the Tree of Life from Lehi and Nephi. Some of us may have heard the name Asherah if we read through the Old Testament, if we made it through the Old Testament. <laughs> Let's be honest about how much we actually sometimes absorb in Sunday school and seminary. Uh, but Asherah is mentioned as one of the uh, gods worshipped uh, by the Canaanites and by the children of Israel, um, even having uh, shrines in the Temple of Solomon. So here, uh, Professor Peterson makes a really interesting connection from First Nephi 11, when Nephi is seeking the meaning of the vision which his father saw. And in which he saw. In which he saw. He sees the tree and it says, asks, after the meaning of it. And then the angel or the spirit, we're not, people, people are not always, people argue about that, shows him the vision of Mary, uh, the mother of, mother of Christ, the man of the flesh. And it's after he sees Mary that the spirit comes back and says, knowest thou the meaning of the tree? And it's then Nephi makes the connection. So it's Professor Peterson going in here going saying, okay, what did this change for him? What did this bring into perspective for him? How did Nephi view it? Yeah, how did Nephi view it? And it's here that he brings in, introduces Asherah, uh, the consort of El in the uh, Hebrew and the Canaanite religion, and goes into some really fascinating and sometimes dense background, but really setting this up to give us a, a strong case for why he believes this to be a, an accurate and true representation of what it could have been for Nephi. Now, what exactly is, I mean, we we assume, what's the traditional Latter-day Saint interpretation of why these words came in the order that they did and and the, how do we typically interpret these words? Usually we just do it as, as the love of God. I feel like we just expand that symbolism from the fruit to the whole of the tree itself. Yeah. And that's there's nothing wrong with that. I believe that's a perfectly accurate uh, symbol for us as well. Symbols change for different peoples and different cultures. That's the power of symbols. Yeah. But this is us getting to know Nephi better than we would have before. We get a, a more full glimpse of Nephi's world, kind of the religious tumult that was going on in the Jerusalem of his day. We don't really think, of, we, we talk about it sometimes, but not often enough in my opinion, about the reforms and the things that were happening and the fact that Nephi and Lehi and his family are technically refugees that have arrived to Jerusalem from the northern kingdom that has been destroyed. Lehi has been established there. He's been there for a long time, but they're bringing in a different set of beliefs potentially than people in Jerusalem have. And this is evidence of that. And that's something actually Professor Peterson mentions um, with certain names that have prominence among the Nephites that would have not have had prominence in Judea, but had prominence in the Northern Kingdom. Who who can we say is Asherah? You say the consort of El. 
Yeah. What What does that mean? Why is this relevant? It's a divine feminine figure. For the Canaanites, it was a much much more uh, sexual being. But for the Israelites, it appears it came to represent much more of a symbol of motherhood and of, of love and of childbearing. Um, and so makes sense in the context of Mary seeing the mother of the Son of God after the manner of the flesh to be shown the tree and then understand all of a sudden that Mary is the mother of the Son of God after the manner of the flesh. And there's some pretty technical, not technical, but some uh, deeper background there with Yahweh and Elohim and various of the gods of ancient Israel and how they, how roles got mixed up and things got combined and things got confused over time. Yeah. So in a sense, I don't want to try and oversummarize. Yeah, same here. I'm trying to I'm trying to step lightly here. Yeah, because because we don't want to like. I have a civil war background. <laughs> well, we don't want to answer things for people. You're allowed to interpret this as you wish, but the implications are somewhat that Mary represents the tree and the fruit is Christ. Could be. That's a perfectly valid representation. Okay. I, th- I think the question that some people will have in some of these situations is, why does it matter? Yeah. Uh, I was thinking about that as you were getting ready to say <laughs> it. And like, people will be, people will be wondering that because it makes the Book of Mormon more real. And for me, it is an, a testament to the historicity of the Book of Mormon, and to its ancient origin. This is stuff that if Joseph knew, he was doing very well for himself in Palmyra in the 1820s and 30s to have known about this. It's, a, it's an evidence for me. Yeah. Whether or not this reading is true in every particular isn't so much the issue as this fits an ancient context. So the first, we're going to break this into two parts. Mm-hmm. And the first part is really... For you, the listeners. <laughs> the, <laughs> yes. Uh, the, this first part is really where we're focusing on what we might call this Asherah side of the, the equation. There's a lot of, lot of information that comes out in this article that starts out about the history of, of that symbol and, and what it represented to the people that were in Nephi's time with the implication that this is possibly how it influenced Nephi's perception. And to me, you know, you say that this helps show the historicity of another layer of historicity mm-hmm. for the Book of Mormon. And to me, it also shows a sign of how the Spirit talks to each individual person. We understand these contexts in different ways, which means we need to not just take the Scriptures one way. Mm-hmm. We, there's, a, there's a value in the experience of trying to come to understand the Scriptures from the point of view of the person that wrote them, not just, this is what it means to me, so this is what it means to me. Uh, there's there's different ways to look at the scriptures and understanding this context can give us another layer of appreciation for the way that the spirit works and how revelation works. So with that, let's jump into a reading of the first part. Join us next week for part two of Nephi and his Ashra by Dan Peterson. See you then. Nephi and his Ashra, part one. By Daniel C. Peterson, found in the Journal of Book of Mormon Studies, in the year 2000. Nephi's vision of the Tree of Life, among the best-known passages in the Book of Mormon, expands upon the vision received earlier by his father Lehi. And it came to pass that the Spirit said unto me, Look! And I looked and beheld a tree, and it was like unto the tree which my father had seen. And the beauty thereof was far beyond, yea, exceeding of all beauty, and the whiteness thereof did exceed the whiteness of the driven snow. And it came to pass that after I had seen the tree, I said unto the Spirit, 
I behold, thou hast shown unto me the tree which is precious above all. And he said unto me, What desirest thou? And I said unto him, To know the interpretation thereof. Since Nephi wanted to know the meaning of the tree that his father had seen, and that he himself now saw, we would expect the Spirit to answer Nephi's question. But the response to Nephi's question is surprising. And it came to pass that he said unto me, Look. And I looked as if to look upon him, and I saw him not, for he had gone from before my presence. And it came to pass that I looked and beheld the great city of Jerusalem, and also other cities. And I beheld the city of Nazareth, and in the city of Nazareth I beheld a virgin, and she was exceedingly fair and white. And it came to pass that I saw the heavens open, and an angel came down and stood before me, and said unto me, Nephi, what beholdest thou? And I said unto him, A virgin most beautiful and fair above all other virgins. And he said unto me, Knowest thou the condescension of God? And I said unto him, I know that he loveth his children. Nevertheless, I do not know the meaning of all things. Behold, the virgin whom thou seest is the mother of the Son of God after the manner of the flesh. And it came to pass that I beheld that she was carried away in the Spirit. And after she had been carried away in the Spirit for the space of a time, the angel spake unto me, saying, Look! And I looked and beheld the virgin again, bearing a child in her arms. And the angel said unto me, Behold, the Lamb of God, yea, even the Son of the Eternal Father. The Spirit then asked Nephi the question that Nephi himself had posed only a few verses before. Knowest thou the meaning of the tree which thy father saw? Strikingly, though, the vision of Mary seems irrelevant to Nephi's original question about the significance of the tree, for the tree is nowhere mentioned in the angelic guide's response. Nephi himself now replies that, yes, he knows the answer to his question. And I answered him, saying, Yea, it is the love of God, which sheddeth itself abroad in the hearts of the children of men, wherefore it is the most desirable above all things. And he spake unto me, saying, Yea, and the most joyous to the soul. How has Nephi come to this understanding? Clearly, the answer to his question about the meaning of the tree lies in the virgin mother with her child. It seems, in fact, that the virgin is the tree in some sense. Even the language used to describe her echoes that used for the tree. Just as she was exceedingly fair and white, most beautiful and fair above all other virgins, so was the tree's beauty, far beyond, yea, exceeding of all beauty, and the whiteness thereof did exceed the whiteness of the driven snow. Significantly, though, it was only when she appeared with a baby and was identified as the mother of the Son of God that Nephi grasped the tree's meaning. Why would Nephi see a connection between a tree and the virginal mother of a divine child? I believe that Nephi's vision reflects a meaning of the sacred tree that is unique to the ancient Near East, and that indeed can only be fully appreciated when the ancient Canaanite and Israelite associations of that tree are born in mind. Asherah, Consort of El the cultural and religious distance between Canaanites and Israelites were considerably smaller than Bible scholars once thought. Michael D. Coogan says it clearly, Israelite religion was a subset of Canaanite religion. Modern scholars have been greatly helped by extra-biblical documents and artifacts that have been recovered from the soil of the Near East. For many years, there had been little beyond the Bible itself for them to study. The situation changed dramatically beginning in 1929 with the discovery of the Ugaritic texts at Ras Shamra in Syria. They revolutionized our understanding of Canaanite religion in general and of early Hebrew religion in particular. 
The god El was the patriarch of the Canaanite pantheon. One of his titles was Elolam. Frank Moore Cross Jr. noted, We must understand it as meaning originally El, Lord of Eternity, or perhaps more properly, El, the Ancient One. The myths recorded on the tablets at Ugarit portray El as a gray-beard father of the gods and father of man. However, observed Professor Cross, no later than the 14th century BC in North Syria, the cult of El was declining, making room for the virile young god Baal Hadu, the Baal of the Old Testament. El was probably also the original god of Israel. In the earliest Israelite conception, Father El had a divine son named Jehovah, or Yahweh. Gradually, however, the Israelite conception of Yahweh absorbed the functions of El, and by the 10th century BC, King Solomon's day, had come to be identified with him. Asherah was the chief goddess of the Canaanites. She was El's wife, and the mother and wet nurse of the other gods. Thus the gods of Ugarit could be called the family of, or the sons of El, or the sons of Asherah. Moreover, Asherah was connected with the birth of Canaanite rulers and could be metaphorically considered to be their mother as well. She was strongly linked with the Canaanite coastal city of Sidon, at least in the period following Lehi and Nephi's departure from the Old World and probably before. This is interesting because Lehi, whose family's origins appear to lie in the north of Palestine and who may have had a trading background, seems to have had particularly close ties with Sidon, for the name appears repeatedly in the Book of Mormon, both in its Hebrew and Egyptian forms, which, at that time, was one of the two harbors through which the Israelites carried on an extremely active trade with Egypt and the West. Moreover, Asherah seems to have been known and venerated among the Hebrews as well. At least some Israelites worshipped her over a period extending from the conquest of Canaan in the second millennium before Christ to the fall of Jerusalem in 586 BC, the time of Lehi's departure with his family from the Old World. Ancient Israelite women, for instance, were sometimes buried in Asherah wigs, and she may also be reflected in Israelite temple architecture. Additionally, thousands of mass-produced goddess figurines have been found at Israelite sites. Summarizing the evidence, William Dever writes of the figurines that most show the female form nude, with exaggerated breasts. Occasionally, she is depicted pregnant or nursing a child. But there is one significant difference between the figurines from Israelite sites and those recovered from pagan Canaanite locations. The lower body of the Israelite figurines lacks the explicit detail characteristic of the Canaanite objects. Indeed, the area below the waist of the Israelite figurines is typically a simple, plain column, whereas the pagan Canaanite objects depict a highly sexualized goddess of both childbearing and erotic love. In the Israelite figurines, the aspect of the dia nutrix, the nourishing or nurturing goddess, comes to the fore. As Professor Dever writes, the more blatantly sexual motifs give way to the nursing mother. Asherah seems to have been popular among all segments of Israelite society over many years. She was worshipped in Israel in the time of the judges. She was especially venerated in the countryside, but she was important in later Hebrew cities as well. Although 1 Kings chapter 3 verse 3 says that he loved the Lord, King Solomon brought Asherah into Jerusalem sometime after 1000 BC and a large-scale center of Asherah worship may have functioned at Ta'anak, under at least the indirect patronage of the court of Solomon. After the separation of the states of Israel and Judah, 
King Ahab and his Phoenician-born queen Jezebel, a daughter of Ethbaal, the king of Sidonians, installed Asherah in Samaria, where around 800 BCE, the official cult of Yahweh included the worship of his consort, Asherah. She seems to have been worshipped there until the fall of Israel to the Assyrians in 721 BC. But the veneration of Asherah was hardly restricted to the often denigrated northern kingdom. In the south, in Judah, Solomon's son Rehoboam introduced her into the temple at Jerusalem, meaning, presumably, that he erected some sort of sacred symbol, sometimes referred to in the lowercase as Asherah, or the Asherah, that represented her. Kings Asa, Kings Asa, and Jehoshaphat removed Asherah from the temple, but Joash restored her. The great reforming of King Hezekiah removed her again, along with the so-called Nehushtan, which 2 Kings chapter 18 verse 4 describes as the brazen serpent that Moses had made. Subsequently, although he failed to restore the Nehushtan, King Manasseh reinstalled Asherah in the Jerusalem temple, where she remained until the reforms of King Josiah, who reigned from roughly 639 to 609 BC. So visible was Asherah still in this period, just prior to the Babylonian captivity, that Lehi's contemporary, the prophet Jeremiah, felt obliged to denounce her worship. In other words, an image or symbol of Asherah stood in Solomon's temple at Jerusalem for nearly two-thirds of its existence, certainly extending into the lifetime of Lehi and perhaps even into the lifetime of his son Nephi. Her title, Elat, or goddess, persists to this day in the name of a major Israeli coastal resort and in the Israeli name for the Gulf of Aqaba. Lehi and his party very likely passed through or by Elat on their journey southward from Jerusalem. By the time of Israel's Babylonian exile and subsequent restoration under Ezra, however, opposition to Asherah was universal in Judaism. Indeed, the developing Israelite conception of Yahweh seems, to a certain extent, to have absorbed her functions and epithets, much as it had earlier absorbed those of Yahweh's father, El. Thus, Asherah was basically eliminated from the history of Israel and subsequent Judaism. In the text of the Bible as we now read it, filtered and reshapen as it appears to have been by the reforming Deuteronomist priests around 600 BC, hints of the goddess remain, but little survives that gives us detailed understanding of her character or nature. So what are we to make of Asherah? Does the opposition to her veneration expressed and enforced by the Deuteronomists and the reforming Israelite kings indicate that she was a foreign pollution of legitimate Hebrew religion coming from abroad? It does not look that way. Recall that Hezekiah removed both the Asherah and the Nehushtan from the temple at Jerusalem. The Nehushtan was not a pagan intrusion, but was the brazen serpent that Moses had made, which had been carefully preserved by the Israelites for nearly a millennium until Hezekiah. Offended by the idolatrous worship of the children of Israel who did burn incense to it, removed it and destroyed it. In other words, the Nehushtan had an illustrious pedigree entirely within the religious world of Israel, and there is no reason to believe that the Asherah was any different in this respect. What is striking in the long story of Israel's Asherah is the identity of those who did not oppose her. No prophet appears to have denounced Asherah before the 8th century BC. The great Yahwehist prophets Amos and Hosea, vociferous in their denunciation of Baal, seemed not to have denounced Asherah. The Elijah-Elisha school of Yahwist reformers do not appear to have opposed her. 
Although 400 prophets of Asherah ate with Jezebel along with 450 prophets of Baal, Elijah's famous contest with the priests of Baal, while dramatically fatal to them, left the votaries of Asherah unmentioned and evidently untouched. What happened to Asherah and her prophets? asked David Noel Friedman. Nothing. In subsequent years, the ruthless campaign against Baal inspired by Elijah and Elisha and led by Israel's Jehu left the Asherah of Samaria standing. Baal was wholly eliminated, while the veneration of the goddess actually outlived the northern kingdom. Belief in Asherah seems, in fact, to have been a conservative position in ancient Israel. Criticism of it was innovative. Saul Olyan, noting that before the reforming kings in Judah, the Asherah seems to have been entirely legitimate, argues that ancient Hebrew opposition to Asherah emanated entirely from the so-called Deuteronomistic Reform Party, or from those heavily influenced by them. Other factions in earliest Israel, Olyan says, probably thought that worshipping her was not wrong and may well have worshipped her themselves. The book of Deuteronomy is considered by most scholars to have been associated with the reforms of the Judahite king Josiah in the 7th century BC, and a number of students of the history of Judah believe that it was actually written during that period. Writing about the common goddess figurines to which we have already referred, Professor Dever remarks, as for the notion that these figurines, whatever they signified, were uncommon in orthodox circles, the late dame Kathleen Kenyon found a 7th century BC cult cache with more than 350 of them in a cave in Jerusalem, not a hundred yards from the Temple Mount. It should be kept in mind that this date for these figurines makes them at least near contemporaries of Lehi. What was Asherah's role in early Israelite religious belief? Given what we have already said about the history of Canaanite and Israelite religion, Asherah may have been the consort of El, but not of Yahweh, at some point in Israelite religion. Over the generations, however, the Israelites' concept of Yahweh absorbed the attributes of Yahweh's father, El, and the people's imagination seems also to have granted to Yahweh the wife and consort of his father. It is well known, remarks André Lemaire, that in Israelite religion, Yahweh replaced the great god El as Israel's god. If Yahweh replaced El, it would seem logical to suppose that under Canaanite influence, Asherah, material tokens representing the goddess, replaced Atharat, the goddess Asherah, and that at least in the popular religion of ancient Israel, if not in the purer form of that religion reflected in the Bible, Asherah functioned as the consort or wife of Yahweh. The view that Asherah was considered the divine wife of Yahweh seems to be gaining ground among students of ancient Israelite religion. That some in Judah saw his consort as Asherah is hardly any longer debatable, declares Thomas Thompson. Asherah was a goddess paired with El, and this pairing was bequeathed to Israelite religion by virtue of the Yahweh-El identification, according to Smith. While Olyan says that Asherah seems to have been regarded as Yahweh's consort in both state and public religion in both the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom of Judah. Important support for this contention has come from two recent and very controversial archaeological finds in Palestine. The first is Kerbet al-Qum, a site about eight miles west of Hebron and six and a half miles east-southeast of Lachish, in the territory of ancient Judah. The Paleo-Hebrew inscriptions of Kerbet al-Qum can be dated between 700 and 800 BC. Scholars agree that they show us at least a portion of the popular religion of their time. The second is Kuntalit Adrud, 
perhaps the southernmost outpost of the kingdom of Judah. This place served as either a fortress or a stopover point for caravans or both. It is situated on the border between the southern Negev and the Sinai Peninsula, not far from the road that linked Gaza and Elat. The archaeological ruins at this location reflect influences from the northern kingdom of Israel and date to the late 9th or early 8th century BC, which would place them in the reign of Jehoahaz, king of Israel, the son and successor to the militant anti-Baalist Jehu. An inscription discovered at Kuntalet, Ajrud, was written in red ink on the shoulder of a large clay vessel. It seems to refer to Yahweh of Samaria and his Asherah. On the other side of the vessel is a drawing of a tree of life. The tomb inscription at Kerbet al-Khom also appears to mention Yahweh and his Asherah, where, where some sort of cultic object is intended, or less likely, Yahweh and his Asherah, where the reference may be directly to a goddess consort. With these finds explicitly in mind, archaeologist William Dever has contended that recent archaeological discoveries provide both texts and pictorial representations that for the first time clearly identify Asherah as the consort of Yahweh, at least in some circles in ancient Israel. Raphael Ptai declares that they indicate that the worship of Asherah as the consort of Yahweh, his Asherah, was an integral element of religious life in ancient Israel prior to the reforms introduced by King Josiah in 621 BCE. David Noel Friedman concurs, saying, Our investigation suggests that the worship of a goddess consort of Yahweh was deeply rooted in both Israel and Judah in pre-exilic times. Among the Canaanites, furthermore, Asherah was also associated with earthly human fertility and human childbirth. A Hebrew incantation text found in Arslan Tash in Upper Syria, dating from the 7th century BC, i.e. the period just prior to Nephi's vision, appears to invoke the help of the goddess Asherah for a woman in delivery. Let us now focus more precisely on the nature of the veneration that was paid to the divine consort among the Israelites. What was the Asherah that stood in the temple at Jerusalem and in Samaria? Asherah was associated with trees. A 10th century cultic stand from Ta'anak near Megiddo features two representations of Asherah, first in human form and then as a sacred tree. She is the tree. Perhaps we should think again here of the Israelite goddess figurines. It will be recalled that their upper bodies are unmistakably anthropomorphic and female, but their lower bodies, in contrast to those of their pagan Canaanite counterparts, are simple columns. William Dever suggests that these columnar lower bodies represent tree trunks. And why not? Asherah is a tree goddess, and as such is associated with the oak, the tamarisk, the date palm, the sycamore, and many other species. This association led to her identification with sacred trees or the tree of life. The rabbinic authors of the Jewish Mishnah, 2nd to 3rd century AD, explained the Asherah as the tree that was worshipped. The lowercase Asherah was most commonly a carved wooden image, perhaps some kind of pole. Unfortunately, since it was wooden, direct archaeological evidence for it has not survived. But we know from the biblical evidence that the object could be planted, so that it stood up, but that it could also be pulled down, cut, and burned. Very probably, it was of wood and symbolized a tree. It may itself have been a stylized tree. It was not uncommon in the ancient Near East for a god or goddess to be essentially equated with his or her symbol 
and Asherah seems to have been no exception. Asherah was both goddess and cult symbol. She was the tree. The menorah, the seven-branched candelabrum that stood for centuries in the Temple of Jerusalem, supplies an interesting parallel to all of this. Leon Yarden maintains that the menorah represents a stylized almond tree. He points to the notably radiant whiteness of the almond tree at certain points in its life cycle. Yarden also argues that the archaic Greek name of the almond, Amygdale, reflected in its contemporary botanical design as Amygdalus communis, almost certainly not a native Greek word, is most likely derived from the Hebrew Amygdala, meaning great mother. The late Bronze Age iconography of the Asherah would suggest, writes Mark Smith, that it represented maternal and nurturing dimensions of the deity. Raphael Patai has called attention to the parallels between Jewish devotion to various female deities and quasi-deities over the centuries, commencing with Asherah and popular Catholic veneration of Mary, the mother of Jesus. Interestingly, it appears that Asherah, the mother goddess par excellence, may also paradoxically have been considered a virgin. The Punic western goddess Tanit, whom Saul Olyan has identified with Israelite Canaanite Asherah, the consort of El, the mother and wet nurse to the gods, was depicted as a virgin and symbolized by a tree. It should be apparent by now why Nephi, an Israelite living at the end of the 7th century and during the early 6th century before Christ, would have recognized an answer to his question about a marvelous tree in the otherwise unexplained image of a virginal mother and her divine child. Not that what he saw and how he interpreted those things were perfectly obvious. What he read from the symbolic vision was culturally colored. The Coptic version of the record called the Apocalypse of Paul shows how cultural interpretation shapes meaning. This document, which probably originated in Egypt in the mid-3rd century of the Christian era, relates a vision of the great apostle that in this detail at least strikingly resembles the vision of Nephi, and he, the angel, showed me the tree of life. Paul is reported to have said, and by it was a revolving red-hot sword, and a virgin appeared by the tree, and three angels who hemmed her, and the angel told me that she was Mary, the mother of Christ. But Nephi's vision goes even further, identifying Mary with the tree. This additional element seems to derive from precisely the pre-exilic Palestine culture into which the Book of Mormon tells us Nephi had been born. Of course, Mary, the virgin girl of Nazareth, seen by Nephi, was not literally Asherah. She was, as Nephi's guide carefully stressed, simply the mother of the Son of God after the manner of the flesh. But she was the perfect mortal typification of the mother of the Son of God. Thank you for listening to part one of Nephi and his Asherah by Daniel C. Peterson, appearing in the Journal of Book of Mormon Studies in the year 2000. Tune in next week for part two and the conclusion of this article right here on the Rare Possessions podcast by Book of Mormon Central. Thanks for listening.